Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 39 years we have engaged the community in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to all. We invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Presbyterian Church for upcoming events. Information can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I am the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest speakers who will be in conversation today on the topic, We the People, a time to act. Parker Palmer is a writer, teacher, activist, and founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal, a nonprofit organization committed to creating a more just and compassionate world by nurturing personal and professional integrity and the courage to act on it. His best-selling books include, among others, Let Your Life Speak, The Courage to Teach, Healing the Heart of Democracy, and On the Brink of Everything. A graduate of Minnesota's Carleton College, which is the co-sponsor of today's program, he holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California at Berkeley. Sandra Samuels is the president and CEO of the Northside Achievement Zone, NAS as we know it here in Minneapolis, in North Minneapolis, a collaborative of more than 40 schools and nonprofit organizations. With parents, students, and community partners, she is leading a revolutionary culture shift in North Minneapolis, focusing on ending multi-generational poverty through education and family stability. She earned a bachelor's degree from Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, and an MBA from Atlanta University in Atlanta, Georgia. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Parker Palmer and Sandra Samuels. And now to get this conversation underway, let me pose a question to the two of you. We have witnessed in recent months and years, and including in this past week, that our nation is mired in seemingly unresolvable political tensions. For the sake of the common good and our democracy, how do we begin to effectively address these tensions? I'll begin. First, Pastor Hart, thank you so much. Wonderful to be back here again. And, um, and just wonderful to be here with you, Parker. Um, we have professed our love for each other, and we just met a couple <laughs> weeks ago, right? <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, I'll, I'll be after, and I can sign Parker's books, too. So. <laughs> but I, I'm going to ask somebody to bring me a tissue, because I feel really weepy. And, um, and I, I was, I've been feeling it all morning as I was thinking about preparing for today. So if anybody, I see my sisters over here have them. See, this is why chicks, I love chicks. <laughs> you carry everything. Um, I, I feel kind of weepy because the conversation that we're having today is so important. And, um, and it is important uh, not only to our republic, but it's important to the, the little boys and girls who are looking to us around what we are going to hand them. Um, in, in Hamilton, um, Hamilton, if any of you saw that, um, the song Dear Theodosia, and everybody knows I do it all the time, um, Hamilton and his nemesis were singing to their um, children around this young country that we have, and we still have a very young country, right? I mean, we're just a twinkle in somebody's eye compared to China. And, um, and he said, you know, you'll come of age with our young nation. We'll bleed and fight for you, We'll make it right for you. And if we lay a strong enough foundation, we'll give the world to you, we'll pass it on to you, and you'll blow us all away. Someday, someday you'll blow us all away. And, uh, and that's the promise that we're making to our children, or should. That's the promise that we have in our Constitution, and you write so eloquently about uh, Parker, um, and it's a promise that we've not made good on, right? And every generation, um, it's our job to do that, to move this more than a government forward or a country forward, a movement forward, right? Democracy is a movement. Everything you said in your book just uh, resonated. But how do we address the tension so that we actually pass on the world 
um, that our children deserve. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Harriet yet. And um, yeah, right? And we couldn't get her on our money. All right, boy, you know, there was a movement and she, she not, didn't quite make it. But anyway, um, I think Harriet kind of distills really what we need today. And that is, um, one, uh, the only way out is in. And she said to herself as an enslaved African, um, this is not who I know I am in God, right? I am a free person. I am a human being. I'm not an animal. And I will not live like this any longer. And so, but she couldn't free somebody else until she got free. And so she, against all peril, and by the way, the most unlikely of persons, like, you know, less than five feet or five feet two or something, but, you know, suffering from narcolepsy and, you know, would pass out at any time and illiterate, you know, how dare she have the audacity to think that not only could she be free, but that she could go back and free others. So us, I think it's a model for us. You don't have to be special, you know, to, to want to be part of a movement. And that's what we need right now. We need a movement to address the, the tensions. And not in the grand way. A movement starts in our hearts, right? And so it started in her heart. She got free. And then she said, it's not enough that I'm good. I have to go back. And so she went back into the South, into slavery, like, several times to free folks. And she said, I would have freed more people if they'd, knew, if they'd known they were free. And, and I would submit to you that as we do this movement, those of us who are here and we have it in our hearts that we want something different for our families, for our children, for our country, that, um, that you just go back, you step into it courageously, and that uh, there might be a lot of people who aren't going to be with us. Parker, you said this in your book, too. Like, I didn't realize that a third of the Congress people, when the Constitution was put together, walked out and didn't sign it. I didn't realize that. And, and you say in your book, and I agree, that a, we all have a third of our family. They're not coming along with us, <laughs> right? A, a third of our friends. So don't expect everybody to be good with, with where you're going and the work that you're doing. But you go back in, and then, you know, you do. And I think, Parker, what we're doing today is, is we're just showing up, and we're trying to reach back. And, like, for example, I wanted this right here is part of the thing, Tim, um, is that, I, like, I wanted Parker to speak for, like, 10 minutes before we talked. And, and I think the thing, what, maybe you were supposed to speak first, I'm not sure, but I wanted you to. And I'm like, you know, my friends want to hear you, not me. And, and Parker said, no, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I, I want to talk. I don't want to be, you know, the wise white guy up front, you know, doing this thing. But I wanted to be in relationship, right, with people from two different backgrounds and, and racial um, backgrounds and gender, and that we talk real with each other. And, and that is the part that I think we miss so often in our country. And I thank you, because you even helped me, because I wanted you to be out front. And I realized, you know, in that, that I had a lot to say, too, you know, around our country. Even though I haven't written a book, it's in my heart. And, uh, yeah. So I'm going to stop there. Yeah, I think you can see readily why we professed our love for each other oh, yeah. right there. And I, no, I don't want to be the wise man up front. I don't mind being the wise guy. Every okay, now right, and right, right. There you go. I learned that at Carleton. So I think you started us off on just the right note, Sandra, that A, that what we need is more conversations across so-called lines. And I call them so-called lines because we invent them in our minds. Right, right. I mean, race does not exist as a category in nature. That's one mm -hmm. thing we know. All of this, gender, uh, sexual orientation, is, a, is, a, is on a continuum. And we have the audacity with our great intellects to break into it and categorize people and screw everything up. Right. That's, that's, that's what that kind of intellectual activity too often does. And I think the other, the other reason you, you set us off on just the right course is with your reference to the Constitution, of course, the Founders, whom we have so often mythologized right. in this society. And of course, the founders had political genius. Right. I, I don't have any question about that. They created the first system of government that I know anything about 
in which conflict, um, deep, divisive conflict, need not be an enemy, the enemy of a good social order, but can be the engine of a better social order. That's what the founders meant by a more perfect union. Mm -hmm. And they set a structure up that was intended to hold those tensions creatively that would allow the tensions to become an engine rather right. than an enemy. The question today, and many of us feel like we're living in apocalyptic times, is whether right. those institutions are going to hold. That's, right. that's one question. Um, and there's, you know, there's worrisome evidence that they may not be holding. Um, and we, we have a, a great recovery job to do in the months and years and weeks ahead. But if it is apocalyptic, I would remind this audience especially that in religious terminology, Apocalypse means revelation. Mm. And so what's happening, I think, right now is we, we are peeling back the layers of an American mythos mm. that has long needed to be exposed to the light of day. You, you can't be a healthy individual without integrating the shadow and the light in right, yourself right. and being fully present to everything you are. I spent many years living on the light side of my life, right? Until I realized that until I could write and speak openly about, for example, my three descents into clinical depression, in which for months at a time I couldn't come out of my room, mm -hmm. until I could say that too is part of who I am. Right. Because I get all these projections as a, as a writer um, th th I couldn't be at home in my own skin in the world. Mm -hmm. And is it not the case that part of our racial dilemma is that we've made a whole, a whole community of people feel not at home in their own skins? Right. The scholars write about it and people who know it from the inside mm -hmm. out write about it as internalized racism. So I think a country also needs to integrate the shadow and the light. So right. I, I don't believe I'm saying anything seditious or unpatriotic right. Right. when I say that we need to remember that this country was built on the backs of enslaved human beings. And that when we talk about racism, which is where we want to take this because we think that's the Absolutely. most critical issue we're, we're facing today in terms of lines of divide, um, we're not just talking about an individual attitude, which is what it often gets boiled down to. We're talking about a political and economic structure that mm -hmm. from the very beginning, this country has been built upon. Mm -hmm. And we need to acknowledge that in order to be whole. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we have to be down on America. Mm -hmm. um, we can hold the American promise mm -hmm. as, as a standard against which to judge who and where we are. Let me take it one more step and yeah. make it more personal, because that's, that's where you and I fell in love, right, right? when we started right. st telling yeah. our stories yeah. on Zoom, of all places. Yeah, on and Zoom, this is, right. This, is, this was not a swipe left, swipe right thing, right. no, no. <laughs> I know, you're surprised that an 80-year-old knows about that. <laughs> I have friends in low places, what can I say? <laughs> so, um, I've been reading the work of a black historian whom, whose work Sandra knows, a young man named, named Ibram X. Uh, Kendi, K-E-N-D-I, Kendi. And he has, he's trying to reboot the conversation on race in America. And he says some challenging things, which is how you reboot a conversation. He, the first thing he says is, non-racist, I don't have a racist bone in my body, is an empty category. There is no one who goes into that category of any description, no one. He says there are only two kinds of people. Um, there are racists and there are anti-racists. And, and they aren't frozen in place. They, that is not a kind of fixed commodity in your life or quality. Day by day, you make decisions as right, to what right. category you fall into. And an anti-racist is one who is resisting, protesting, witnessing, witnessing against racist policies and practices. An anti-racist, for example, would point out the fact that 
one of the closest people to our current president is a man named Stephen Miller, about whom there is no doubt that he is a racist and a xenophobe and a white nationalist. His own words convict him of that. That's not my judgment. That's his words, the people he communicates mm -hmm. with, what he communicates with them. So he also says, Kendi, K-E-N-D-I, if you want to Google it, says the first step in uh, anti-racism work is confessing one's own racism. So here's my confession. I, along with every other white person I know, am a constant beneficiary of white privilege. Constant, day by day. I can't escape it. I've talked with white people who say, I've talked with white people who say, but wait a minute, I know white people who failed to get the job or who right, you know, failed right. to get the house they wanted or who've been you know, maligned or mistreated in many, many ways. And I say, I'm sorry about those people, but I can almost guarantee you that that did not happen because of the color of their skin. There was some other factor involved. Whereas people born with black skins are subject from day one, day by day, to that kind of marginalizing and, 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 and that kind of withdrawal of privilege um, based on an assumption mm -hmm. about who they are. People say, well, I don't feel guilty. White people say this to me. I don't feel guilty about this being a racist country, you know, why should I feel guilty about that? And I said, no, you're not guilty for being born white. Nobody's guilty for being born anything. But the problem is there's a whole, we've designated a whole category of people who are guilty by virtue of being born black. But no, you're not guilty for being born white. The guilt for a white person comes when we fail to acknowledge our white privilege. Mm -hmm. that's, where the, that's where guilt comes in because that's a conscious, adult decision, to confess, to make an acknowledgement, to, mm -hmm. to be honest in your presence in the world. And I'll make one more confession mm -hmm. before I ask you how this sounds to you, because yeah. I really want to know. <clears throat> I'm guilty, I learned over the course of years, with a certain, of a certain form of white supremacy. And I think it's a cop-out for white people to limit the phrase white supremacy to people who wear hoods and burn crosses. Mm -hmm. I think it's an absolute cop-out. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna need a tissue in a minute here. <laughs> I'll share. <laughs> I know you will. Um, when, I, I, when I got out of Berkeley, I walked away from academic life. I became a community organizer in Washington, D.C where I spent five years at age 29 to 35, for 34, um, working against redlining and blockbusting in a critical transitional neighborhood. I thought I had checked that box, mm -hmm. you know? Oh, I'm an anti-racist, right. Right. right? I had checked that box, over and done with, on to the next step in my career. I came to realize eventually that the form of white supremacy that I was unconsciously holding was the assumption that the white way was the normative way. Right, the right. white way was the normal way to right. do things. I, it, I didn't hate anybody. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't diss anybody. I didn't marginalize anybody. I just found their ways strange and exotic mm -hmm. and sometimes weird and mm -hmm. sometimes off-putting. It didn't lead me to burn crosses, but mm -hmm. it led me into other attitudinal traps, right? Mm -hmm. That's that kind of unconscious assumption where you're pushing off the notion that, I know I'm not one of those people. I'm mm -hmm. one of the good guys. Mm -hmm. So Kendi alerts me to the fact that if I cannot bear, if, if, if I cannot bear enough self-examination to say I'm a constant recipient of white privilege and also that I have an unconscious form of white supremacy, I haven't taken the first step toward being an anti-racist. Right. That's what Kendi is right. saying. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that uh, abundant sense. And and um, 
you know, the interesting thing. So I'm 53 now, and um, and I. You're not going to get any pity from me. I know, all right. <laughs> but uh, but the, the the one thing about being 53 is that I don't talk in black and white anymore. It's it I it's almost always both and. And and so many things are just um, non-dualistic for me, and 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 when they're not, I know that I'm I'm probably not thinking right about it. But um, so with the anti-racism and racism, like I I think that most like all white people are the ones I know typically are both. Like they, and you said it's contextual, right? Mm -hmm. They can show up very anti-racist and very racist. Right, because the, the the situations are dynamic. This this happens in one and another one, and and no, you know, I'm not getting lynched, um, but there are you know ways of being that, especially for me as a black person and a woman, um, where it's been communicated by my white friends who do anti-racist things, like we might be you know working together in the community at the Capitol. Um, but messages get sent around um, not being comfortable when I'm not more white. Mm -hmm. My hair, the way I speak, my mm -hmm. affect, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's a real thing um, that, that we often feel. And I've, I have been overlooked for jobs because of how I was wearing my hair, mm -hmm. that it was not more straight like um, a white woman's. But there, the thing around the anti-racism and the white supremacy, and I know white people kind of flinch at that because it's like, I'm not that, right? Um, well, you know, you are that. We all are that. And, and one of the challenges is that we have created this us and them. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I even, and I'm, I, I have a, a young man who lives with us, our, our, we call him our godson, but he goes to De La Salle High School. And he, he's black. But he said that a, um, President Trump was just here. And he said that he has a number of um, kids who love Trump at his school and that they went to the big rally. And he said, and so, you know, he, you know, that, that makes him brokenhearted, you know, that they are his classmates. But he got brokenhearted when they came back from the rally and told them what happened to them. So these teenage um, boys, it was a teenage boy who said, he said was kind of a rough, seemed, you know, like a real confident kid, cried in the classroom because he said he'd gone to the rally and a bunch of liberal folks surrounded him. They broke his cell phone. They chanted at him. And, and I, my heart was broken. Like, do we think we're winning that little kid over? You know, and, and those were liberal good people probably black and white, and, and, and we point to those who are on the other side, mm -hmm. whether it be because of race or political, and we can hate them. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I've seen some like, oh, I can't even talk about this current government. I just, they're just terrible. And, and, and you know, while that's true, you know, I love... <laughs> I, I, love I love Martin Luther King, who said, um, my sick white brothers and sisters. He didn't, he still knew that they were his family, yeah. right? Yeah. And that there was some connection between us. And so the very behavior that we say we hate yeah. happened to that young boy, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, the, and, the one, and so we have to be so careful of that and that we see each yeah. other and the other, yeah. like always, and know that any behavior of a human being we are absolutely capable of. Yeah. We are. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you just did for us exactly what we all have to do. I, I would call that creative tension holding yeah. to say the current government is terrible. I hate them. And it's true right. for you, right? But and, which got a the laugh it got was a laugh of recognition. Right. Right. And then you circled around that and you said, but there's a better way to hold that, to approach right, that right. for yourself. Right. As as well. Right. And you weren't just sort of preaching to us or to right. me. You were saying, for, I have to remind myself that these very strong and angry and sometimes tending, I'll speaking for myself now, tending toward violent Is in opinions, right. I have to back off from them a bit and check them right. in, in wis various wisdom traditions and wisdom leaders who have a better thing to say 
than the lesser angels of my nature. Right, you know, right. Lincoln is not often, he's often, he's always credited with the better angels of our nature, but the very phrase suggests we have lesser angels as well. It does. And he knew them in, him, in himself as right. the victim of depression, as, as somebody who changed his mind on race, which we often forget or were never taught about. Um, so, Right. I just wanted to lift up yeah, that absolutely. moment. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to say something about the anti-racism and white supremacy. There is a, a gentleman, many of us in North Minneapolis and I think throughout the community are really looking at another term called white body supremacy. Mm. That in fact our um, our racism is held in our bodies. It's not just a mental thing. And I had done diversity training, conducted tr diversity training for like a decade and I wondered why the state wasn't healed. Right. We, but we've been doing diversity training. Everybody gets it. You know, they understand we all have biases and, and then you leave kumbaya. And it seems like and, and the gaps, the gap that we have on a national level in terms of the myth of America and the reality of America. Um, Minnesota is ground zero for those gaps, yeah. um, especially across racial lines like no other state, except sometimes on some points, Wisconsin beats us. Yeah, but not. Say, yeah. yeah sorry. Sorry, Parker. But not, um, we're, we're, we're 50th out of all 50 states in graduating black students on time from high school. Um, we are second to last in terms of the gap between black and white folks around home ownership, education, 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 and income, and, and life expectancy as well. Right, so we have these huge gaps. But so supremacy resides in our bodies, all of us, right, black and white. And in fact, Ta-Nehisi Coates, in a in a book that he wrote, The World Between the World and Me, a young black man said, you know, if the color of my skin looks like a weapon, then I'm always armed. Right, so it's like because the first thing you react to is somebody's body. I've been reacted to when I when people feel as though I, I'm more white or act more white or look more white and when I don't. And so especially for black young men and the darker they are, oh my gosh, um, the reaction that just is just bodily is visceral. And so with white body supremacy, we all have to acknowledge and admit that the white body mm -hmm has been determined in America as being the preference, mm -hmm. Absolutely. right? And we respond to that, even without thinking about it and uh, not intending to, you know, there's a difference between intent versus impact. But I think it's a, it, it has to come through our bodies and our minds in terms of our healing, the healing the heart. Yes, yes, absolutely. The heart is a bodily organ. Right. And so and the body politic right. is a serious business. Um, so th I'm so glad you brought the body into this mm -hmm. because like many men, I was slow to come to body recognition. Mm -hmm. I, I think in some ways the older I've grown and the, the less dependable my body <laughs> has become, the, the more my understanding of the power and importance of the, of the body has, has sunk in. And it is absolutely embedded in us at a, at a, at a, uh, at a, a a level deeper than skin. Right. It's more. It's, it's more, more than skin deep, and this this leads me to um, um, realizing, as as I knew I would, because it, it happened on Zoom, that you would take us into um, very tricky territory. Mm. Um, I, I I wanted to say to this audience that. Um, there's there's a very important job to be done conversationally. Yes. Not only across visible lines, so-called mm -hmm. lines of race and gender, but also within communities that look as if they're all the same. Right. And and there's a big big need here for white people to sit and talk about the kinds of things that you and I are talking about here, but that many white people would be reluctant to speak Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Um, in, in, uh, in, uh, if they weren't in white company, mm -hmm. you know, exclusively white company. So in my new book, I say old is just another word for nothing left to lose. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm old enough to rip off Chris, Chris Christopherson now. And <laughs> I basically don't care what anybody thinks of me, and that's an advantage sometimes. I mean, so I was taught 
two things at home. One was to speak the truth as often as I possibly could, and the other was to speak the truth in love. Right, and amen. That's, that's where I think this conversation needs to go among white people. I didn't tell you this story on Zoom, but when I was young and getting started in this weird non-job I've had for 40 years uh, with no title and no office and, and no regular salary and, and a mom who just wondered, how soon is he going to move into my basement? Because right. he, he, he has no visible means of support. Uh, I, 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 um, um, so when I was very young, where was I going with that? That's the other problem. <laughs> I do that too. I, I used to thank you. I do that too. Because you're you. only 53. Yeah. But, <laughs> so, so I used to get calls from churches because they knew I was a community organizer and a sociologist, and, and they would say, we have a homogeneous white congregation. Would you please come and help us get more diverse? This is after the... <laughs> This is, okay, you're ahead of me on that one. Yeah. So this was after the 60s and all of its impacts, and I was from Berkeley, so I was the diversity guy, right? right? Would you please come to this homogeneous white congregation and help us get more diverse? And I would, I, I, very quickly, I'd learn to say, no, I, I, I won't do that. Well, well why not? You, you write and you say you care about diversity. And I said, yeah, I do. Why, the reason I won't do it is that there's no such thing as a homogeneous white congregation. It's, it's, it, it's, it's like a unicorn, it's a total myth. All there are, all we have in this country are white congregations that are pretending to agree with each other and to be all alike for fear that they might hit the, a flashpoint of difference. Right. Political difference, sexual orientation difference, mm -hmm. difference in terms of careers falling apart and marriages mm -hmm. failing anything that might expose them to each other in a vulnerable yeah. way, they're pretending in order not to hit those flashpoints right. that would blow the community up. So tell me this, if, if I'm right about the nature of your congregation, why in heaven's name would a person with a visible difference want to join you? You can't even handle your invisible differences, right? Right. <laughs> So, um, so the point obviously is that it's another way of talking about the importance of what I'm going to call tribal conversations right. as well as conversations across lines because not all the lines are visible. Right, right. Not all the lines are visible. Um, let's be honest about the current political situation about which you and I both have strong mm -hmm. feelings. There are supporters of number 45 who feel that it's totally unsafe in a lot of circles to express their support. And it wasn't safe for that teenage boy exactly, at the rally. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are opponents of number 45, critics of mm -hmm. number 45, who feel it's not safe to talk yeah. about this in certain right. circles. Right. That, that has to change. It absolutely does. And, and a lot of that change is on a tribal basis. Mm -hmm. Um, by the way, one of the challenges with having those kind of white-on-white -white conversations here in Minnesota is um, you've heard of Minnesota Nice. Oh, I know it. Right? So. <laughs> it's like deep winter. At yes, 80, yes. At 80 degrees. Yeah, those of us who, those of us who, uh, who are not white call it Minnesota Ice. <laughs> there uh, you go. So because then you don't get that job, your community stays in disrepair, you know, your kids yeah. don't get educated, but everybody's yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? exactly. Um, yeah, you know, it is, and, and you talk about it, Parker, the um, healing the heart. That's, that's the whole thing your book is about, healing the heart of democracy. And, and how, you know, it is about our hearts and how we do this thing together. Like, but you have to do your own work. Mm -hmm. And in fact, with um, the, the white body supremacy, it's part of um, racialized trauma work that many of us in North Minneapolis are doing. I see a couple of my partners out there. And we actually separate our groups into white body mm -hmm. groups and to black and brown body mm -hmm. groups. Mm -hmm to have our own conversations mm -hmm. about racialized trauma. Yeah. 
because white people have been tra traumatized as well. Yeah. But, but it's just, it, it's always framed as if it's just those black and brown people yeah. and kids. But yeah. we all, and we bring our trauma, this whole country has been traumatized, right? Absolutely. And we bring our, and trauma meets trauma, and yeah. right? Yeah. And so we don't come together. And we fear not being nice, or even just not being seen as nice. Right. And so to be able to, 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 um, to move into that fear. In fact, Parker, when you and I were talking, I got off the phone, I'm sorry, our Zoom call. Yeah. And, um, gotta keep our story and, yeah, straight. Yeah, and I, and I <laughs> right, gotta keep it straight. And I, I felt a little bad about calling you out about your whiteness on something. And I said, I wonder, like he doesn't know me that good. I wonder if he, but I felt close to you. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I could. I Remember about the John Woolman story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I'm like, you know, does he get me? Does he know I don't, you know, that I, I think he's cool still, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but it, you know, but I thought about it. And, and so often it keeps us away right. from each other. Right. Because you, because part of the fear is you don't want to feel bad or look bad. Yeah, no, I honor that moment in, in the Zoom call because it was high trust. Right. For you to right. say something like that. And, and it was high trust for me to work on receiving it as right. you intended it. Um, but it, those kinds of conversations open, open something up. They do. That desperately needs, needs to be opened up. And, it, and the love, speaking the truth in love is really, really right. different from speaking right. the truth in nice. Right, right, right. Or, right. or, 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 or rage, or, ice. Or, or rage. Or rage, right. absolutely. Right. Which can happen really from different. when you've been yeah. um, the brunt of. Yeah the inequities. Yeah, and we need yeah. to think, I mean, we white Christians, I believe, need to think, and I think black Christians too, Christians of every sort, we need to think hard about the varieties of love and right. not just philia, agape, eros, and whatever right. the other one was that right. I used to know when I was in seminary, but yes. as soon as they stopped testing me on it, I forgot. Um, <laughs> so, um, Dorothy Day, one of my personal saints and heroes, was very fond of quoting Dostoevsky in her work with the deep, deep underclass and yeah. dispossessed, as right. Howard Thurman mm -hmm. called them, uh, the disinherited, I guess, was, right. was Thurman's word. Um, she used to quote Dostoevsky, who said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Right. That that's huh. a, a check mark for us right. because love in action is going to slam us into some stuff. Right. And to hold that 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 collision in a loving way yeah. is is a big task. Big yeah, task. you know, I you know, one of the things when, when Tim was asking at the beginning around um, what will it take in terms of attention, the um, two things, two, and it's about the love. In your book you quote Hafez, is it, do you pronounce it Hafez, the Persian poet? I have no idea. Okay, good, yeah. like, I, like, cool, <laughs> cool, I'm glad, I'm glad. But So we're gonna say Hafez, <laughs> uh, Persian poet, but in that poem, and I don't remember it exactly, you know which one I'm talking about, you gave it its own page. Uh -huh. and it, but he basically said, you know, we're, we're holding hands and we're climbing, oh, right? right? And, um, and, 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 we're, and we're, we're climbing and we're not gonna let go, and if we do let go, um, it's because we have failed to love. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we have no time for that because the terrain down there is too dangerous, mm -hmm. yeah, right? Yeah. And, and talking about, and again, this movement of, of us, like we have, this is not a, an indigenous movement, a white movement, a black movement, an Asian movement. This is, this is an American movement of, of those of us who find ourselves out of seven billion people on earth that we happen to be here together in this country. Right. Right? And, and where we say we share, and by the way, everybody, I carry the Constitution now um, around with me, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I love it. Um, I, I started doing that because after reading your book, and Hamilton. And, yeah, <laughs> I bet in Hamilton had the greater impact. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, 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 Hamilton might have, but, um, you know, Eli um, Wazell, the Holocaust survivor, said that since we have a Statue of Liberty on the East Coast, we probably should erect a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Yeah. Right? Yeah, nice. And. Right. And this, um, yeah, and this, um, and, I, and it really spoke to me around, um, you know, when you start seeing yourself as responsible for those that you used to consider the other, 
boy, you know, I mean, that is love and yep. that is hopefulness. Yeah. And then you and because you can't lose hope. We've been here before as a country. This yeah. is not the first time. Yeah. And if you're African American, you lived here, yeah. right? You live here in this place of tension, yeah. of feeling like the country is not your own, and that it just has its big foot on your neck, right? right? And and so all of our gospel songs, all every ancestor that I can think of from you know way back when, it was always like. And God will make a way. And we've seen it. All of the different movements. We're we're here today because people allowed their hearts to be moved and to be changed and to love and to keep loving and to not giving up hope. Maya Angelou has a great quote where she says that love, when, when love is like really loving, it breaks down walls. It climbs every barrier. It confronts, you know, any any monster and it arrives at its destination full of hope, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. and I know that that is how we have to be on this loving path of, of, of being responsible for each other and having yeah. the courage to do yeah. it. Yeah, and I just want to, yeah, Pardon. amen. Yeah. I'm, I want to say one more thing before we go to questions, okay. and, and that is to connect quickly with what you said about uh, people of color not feeling like this is their country. Right. So this is an important moment for white people mm-hmm. because I know tons of white people who over the last three years have had the growing feeling, this is not my country. Right, either. right. Every value right. I care deeply about right. is being trashed. Right. And, and I have to say this, and please understand, I am not anti-Republican. Some of my best friends are Republicans. Oh, I've heard that. Uh, <laughs> I like black people. Some of my best friends are black people. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Parker. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I wanted that resonance <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the room. But my dad was the best man I ever knew was an Eisenhower Republican. So I grew up with a yeah, Chicago businessman. Yeah. But we got a whole party today who is supporting the scam and who is supporting everything that uh, makes me feel like I'm, I no longer belong. Mm-hmm. This is a moment in which compassion and connection become possible. Amen. Because we, know, Amen. we now know a little bit about how people of color feel. A little bit. Just a little bit. I will never know the whole story. But because we can, Amen. some of us connect... Yeah. around this country doesn't feel Does, like amen. mine anymore. Amen. I think we have a, another opportunity to amen. take those baby steps forward that history always requires. Amen. I'm going to jump in now to get to the question and answer. Thank you, Parker Palmer and Sandra Samuels. You're you're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our guest speakers today are Sandra Samuels and Parker Palmer. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, Heard in the Twin Cities on 91.1 FM, our online media sponsor, MinPost, and the co-sponsor of today's forum, Carleton College, recognized nationally as one of the nation's top colleges for undergraduate teaching and for fostering depth, creativity, and compassion inside the classroom and out. This is the last forum of the fall 2019 season. Information on the speakers and dates for our upcoming spring 2020 season will be announced in early January. Visit our website, westminsterforum.org, for further information. And now, let me present the questions from our audience. Parker, you have referred to the heart as something like the canary in the coal mine when it comes to toxicity in our culture. And Sandro, you're speaking of a toxicity that resides deep within our own community. How do we, as a community, begin to address the toxicity that uh, flows so deep in our systems. If you could go first. Yeah, so uh, an important question. So if we track the canary in the coal mine analogy, Mm -hmm. um, I think the first thing you do is you air out the mine. 
and you probably stop the mining operation that uh, you, you definitely stop the mining operation that's producing the toxicity. Um, I'm now thinking of the boundary waters in our beloved state of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> I want to put a plug in for protecting that natural resource too. Um, and and in, in our case, I think I'm going to go around a corner on this one because what Sandra said interested me a lot. It actually it, it dwells with me. She said, America is a country in trauma, mm -hmm. right? That, and we're all in trauma. We are. And so I think the, the clues for how we get rid of the toxicity that's creating the trauma probably begin with the wisdom that has accumulated around the treating of, of individual trauma mm -hmm. experiences, mm -hmm. whether that's sexual abuse or, right. or whatever. Um, and uh, I, I'm quite certain that the first thing that needs to happen is we need to talk about it. And, and we need to talk about it in safe spaces. Mm -hmm. and, and by safe space, I don't mean a space where everybody can go to sleep and just get away with saying anything they want. Um, uh, Tim made reference earlier to uh, an, uh, an organization that I helped found called the Center for Courage and Renewal. And for 25, 30 years, we've been creating around the country safe spaces for mm. difficult mm -hmm. conversations that have certain ground rules that are needed to keep space safe in a culture that's very invasive of people's safety, of people's sanctity. Um, and so I think there, there are things to learn about creating those spaces that the churches can get engaged in. The church has to become a safe space for hard conversations. Mm -hmm. But you can't just do it by saying, we're all Christians, let us pray, and now let us talk. It doesn't work. You need ground rules, and you need facilitation. You need boundary keepers and rule, keep, rule setters. Um, because this cultural drift is toward isolation and verbal assault and unsafety of a dozen sorts. And, and so there, there's, a, there's a skillful enterprise involved in creating safe spaces. I wrote a book about it, but I'm not going to tell you its name because I'm not here to hawk books. Well, maybe I'll tell you later. But, um, and thank you for reading my books because I don't read my own books. Mm. It's, uh, it's hard enough to write them. Why should I read yes. them? But I'm grateful for careful readers who can feed back to me. Sandra, to toxicity from your perspective? Yeah. Um, so, um, ladies, how many have gone to the gynecology late, late, lately? Gynecologist. And you know that tool called the speculum that we hate, right? They bring it out, and we're like, you wish you had a gun. I went the other day. I'm going to get to my point, Tim, for the guys in the audience. <laughs> you go, you go. I went the other day, and when I saw the speculum, I got flashback into history. Um, I got flashback into slavery, and I, and I was like looking at um, the father of gynecology in America. There was a statue of him in uh, Central Park in New York. Uh, James Marion Sims, he also went on to be, he was named the father of gynecology. He came up with the speculum. He was also like the, the advisor to the King of France, just a notable person, statue of, in New York, uh, Central Park. And he experimented on women who look like me with no anesthesia. He would buy um, African, enslaved African women and experiment on gynecological, all of the gynecological advancements. That, that we all um, hate, but they help us today, came from him. He was the origin of them. In, in, this, in such a heinous and nasty, nasty way. And, and, I, and, I, and I, when I learn the history, because America doesn't tell us our history, that's one of the challenges we have right now. It's like, why can't they just pull themselves up by the bootstraps? We did. And it's like, if you like actually knew the, and you had a lover's quarrel with our country, and you actually understood what happened to indigenous people, not on a broad scale, but knew the stories of Ma J James Marion Sims. You could start piecing together 
why somebody might say, I've never felt like this was my country. You know, Michelle Obama got exact, she got like, she got lambasted when she mentioned that, mm -hmm. that it, it was finally feeling like her country. People were saying, oh, how could she say that? She's not American. She said it because she is American. She loves America and she understands history because she embodies it. Mm -hmm. And right, so I, right. yeah. And so I wish, in a, in a local context, Tim, um, Minnesotans keep saying, why do we have so many gaps when we're such good white people? For real. And, and it's like, and, and they would know why if they knew history. And you know, we do a bus tour through North Minneapolis to explain the history of the community and how it came to be. The redlining, the genocide, the, you know, just everything. And, and I think when people leave there, they get a better sense of why that side of the community is the way it is and how we all had a part. History is now, you know, what's happening in North Minneapolis is a lagging indicator in terms of what went on in our hearts. There's a great film ago. called The Jim Crow of the North that, yes. that documents Amen. this in a right, marvelous exactly. way. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, a number of questions coming forward from our audience here at Westminster, and I suspect some of you listening on the radio might have this same question. Is it, we're basically a white audience on the radio and here in the room. Would what you are saying be any different if this were an audience full of African Americans or full of people of color? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Parker and I were talking about it um, earlier, and um, you know, there are we 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 have had while we are one, and we are all so much alike, so much, and our vulnerability helps really connect us. We've had different life experiences, and there are different things that I say to an all-black community than I would an all-white community, and um, and and I know the same for you, Parker, because um, there are different messages because our hearts have been broken in different ways. And so the healing and the word and words can be such balm um, have to be different. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, uh, and at the same time, I think what we're trying to model here is an honest conversation yes, absolutely. across so-called right. lines right. of difference because that too right. is needed. But I, I completely understand, well, as best a white person is able, why it is that some people of color, maybe many people of color, feel unsafe in my presence, right. especially a conversational presence. Right. The, in that case, the trust that safety requires is something I have to earn, and you right. don't earn it in an hour. Right. You, you, don't, you earn it over a long period of sustained relationship. Right. And, and so that's another thing a lot of us need, is, is sustained relationships. Across so-called lines of difference that really reshape our souls, and and are a, are a kind of spiritual formation or recovery from spiritual deformation, right. which I think is actually right. a better way to phrase that issue and, and that need. A number of questions about uh, the the note about courage, which is so present in your writing and work, mm -hmm. Parker, uh, and. Why is courage uh, a difficult thing these days? In, in your community, Sandra, how, where do you see courage? Mm -hmm. Or Parker, in your work, courage? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think courage has, has always been difficult. I just think there was a time in this country, in my lifetime, I was born in 1939, and you know, we worked our way through World War II, and then came the affluent 50s for some of us, mm -hmm. for some of us, mm -hmm. not for all of us by a long shot, but the rest were hidden from the view of people like me. I told Sandra that I grew up in the all-white community of Wilmette, Illinois, on the north shore of Chicago, and I never knew a person of color as a human being until I was 22 years old and showed up at Union Theological Seminary and was assigned to the youth pastor, a wonderful black man named Bob Polk, who wisely gave me field work. Imagine this, me at 22, fresh out of Carleton, another at the time virtually all white institution, one black student every other year, was, <laughs> and, right. and the one, the classmate of mine, Joyce Hughes, became a distinguished jurist. Uh, I mean, she was really, really smart. 
And, and so the bar was higher at, for, for people of color to get into Carleton. But, but he assigned me, Bob Polk assigned me to work with junior high kids from Spanish Harlem for the entire year, playing basketball with them on Saturdays, which was okay, because I was tall, although clumsy, um, and they, they could dribble rings around me, and they rather enjoyed doing it, um, but also to give a, a Sunday school lesson. And of course, I, of course, junior high kids from Spanish Harlem want to learn about Bultmann and, uh, you know, Niebuhr and Tillich. I mean, that, of course, they, this would help be helpful in their, their daily lives. <laughs> and so the, one of the most important moments in my life was when these, these kids who, who had street smarts that I didn't recognize did guerrilla warfare on me so skillfully for the first five or six sessions, breaking me down, breaking me down, breaking me down, until the seventh se session, where I thought I had it nailed, because I really learned my Bultmann, um, I wept in public for the first time in my life in front of these kids. And I will never forget the response over the next few weeks. They became my, they became my friends. Yeah. It was the vulnerability. The that vulnerability. Created, Whoa, that took me by surprise. They're yeah. right here with me. They're right here with me right now. Um, they became my friends uh, because I, they recognized in me a vulnerability that they felt every moment of their lives, every day. In, in, on and it the, took courage for you to share that yeah, with Yeah, and, and so there's the, there's, the, there's the courage of just showing up as ourselves. Right. Sandra, where do you see courage in North Minneapolis? Oh, a lot of places, and, 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 where I, and, and one of the things, though, Tim, I think is important to talk about is why it's so hard. You know, because nobody, especially when you're talking to your tribe, you don't want to lose face. You don't want, you know, you don't want the people that you're with all the time. It's like you don't want to offend, right? And, and lose your standing, so to speak. And I, and I want to, and then as, you don't want to lose what you feel like you're benefiting from. And sometimes as a person of color to confront some of the things that happen on a racist standpoint, you, have a, you stand a lot to lose. Um, not like your life, like with Harriet Tubman or Martin Luther King or any of those folks, but you feel like it in the moment. Um, and then even with your own, you feel like you have a lot to lose. I know um, my husband and I live, and, and so I'm going to say just two things. We live in North Minneapolis, and we wouldn't live anywhere else. And we've been living there for like 22 years. And we often ask other middle-class black folks to move there. And, and we talk about the fact, and we, we were shy about doing it for a long time because we didn't want people to think that we were better or we were judgy because we were there. And, but we feel like a big part of the solution is that young black and brown kids need to see lawyers and doctors and executives right on their block. And right now they don't, right? And, uh, and so, but that's a hard thing. And like we brought it up at a meeting one time of all of these black executives and as we were talking about what needed to happen and we were saying we need to live with people, like living there makes a difference. And, uh, and they wouldn't even write it on the board. And then the, the big, the, and, the, and the thing around, I know in education, and, I, and this is gonna probably get me in trouble, but I, I just need it to, because I just, like you said, when you get older, like you don't care anymore or whatever, you know, you're close to the, right? But in education, with, with our intractable issues in Minnesota, there's so much that all of us have to do, you know? So it is, again, we have the most seismic gap in education in the country. And, and I see the lives of children both literally and figuratively in North Minneapolis, because I've been there for 22 years, so we've seen a generation, right, who have been failed. And, and it is by their parents, and it is by the system. The system sounds so amorphous, but, but white folks who didn't believe they could make it because they were black and brown, um, and by the school system. And, and again, we have, everybody has stuff to do. My husband and I have a radio show called Power to the Parents. What we do today impacts who we become tomorrow. That is for black parents in terms of what we need to do in our households. Um, but then the education establishment has things they need to do. 
And everybody who's focused on education knows it, but we are afraid to say it publicly because it sounds like we're union busting. And what I want to say is that in North Minneapolis, for example, and I mean, Tim, this is a big area of scariness. Um, because we are, people, I mean, I, I'm a union baby. I mean, I'm, I, I sucked on the nipple of a union. I, my father would have never become middle class if not. But the, the, the policies of the teachers union have been impacting the kids in my community in terms of we have the kids who need the most experienced teachers. Because of laws, the most experienced teachers don't work in North Minneapolis, right? And I mean, we need more teachers of color. If there's last in, first out, every time it opens up, the teachers of color are the last one, they're the first ones to go because we're 96% white teacher um, state, 4% teachers of color. These are hard conversations to have and it takes courage. And I'm not gonna be quiet anymore. And, uh, and because the kids are failing, they're failing. And, that, and, so, and, it, and it's not just about, and again, this is not a union thing. This is about a system that is not working for poor brown and black kids. Exactly. Thank you for those challenging words. We're going to have to wrap it up now. Thank you, Sandra Samuels and Parker Palmer.